0: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for
1: free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh,
0: oh, oh, O'Reilly Auto Parts.
2: Hi, I'm Dahlia Lithwick, legal correspondent, author and host of Slate's Amicus podcast, a show about the rule of law, the law and the Supreme Court justices who interpret it for the rest of us. I've been watching the High Court for over two decades, and I bring all that experience and knowledge to examining the U.S. justice system and democracy. Each episode, I am joined by guests with deep knowledge of the law and policy who help me and you navigate our constitutional landscape. Slate's Amicus podcast. Subscribe now wherever you listen.
0: Hello, and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guests are Congressman Raja Morthy and Vice President Al Gore. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to @Politicon for next week's show. Now, we're going to get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the link to our sponsor, Lomi. In our episode show notes, we thank you for supporting our sponsors that helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, we should be talking about the climate crisis every week, none more so than this week. And there is no one better in the world, in the world, to discuss this than former Vice President Al Gore on climate. All he's done is write a best-selling book, produced a documentary, won an Oscar and an Emmy, and then for good measure, a Nobel Prize. Mr. Vice President, we are so honored to have you here Um But I'm looking this week, scorching heat waves throughout the southeast to California, Canadian wildfires, torrential downpours in Vermont, the Great Salt Lake drying up and ocean temperatures approaching 100, all related to climate. You've been warning about this for 30 years. So it must be depressing to see uh, uh, things like this week.
1: Well, first of all, Al, thank you. And thank you, James, for having me on this uh, podcast. Uh, I've been Looking forward to it. My feelings are a little bit hurt that it's taken so long for y'all to ask me to be on it. But, uh, <laughs> but i older keep... than
0: you and we're slower. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, so, um, you know, all I did uh, and all I have done is to um, develop close relationships and friendships with some of the greatest uh, climate scientists in the world uh, who have been patient enough with me to repeat things slowly over and over again until I can get it into language that I can understand and therefore communicate to others, uh, sometimes successfully. Uh, And in answer to your question, I I will say that I, I wish these scientists I've been channeling had been wrong. I wish that their warnings had been for naught. Uh, but unfortunately, they they were correct and indeed spot on. Uh, and I guess the most appropriate reaction would be since they were dead right uh, in their warnings uh, 30 years ago, we ought to pay more attention to them when they give us fresh warnings today about what's going to happen if we don't stop using the sky as an open sewer. For 162 million tons of man-made global warming pollution every 24 hours, it's really crazy, and they've been telling us. Uh, and I do think that this is a moment uh, when people are are really uh, taking notice of it for sure. I, you know, I sometimes have said every night on the TV news is like a nature hike through the Book of Revelation, and you just spun out a whole series of phenomena that are all linked together, as you said. And um, I I think we're getting um, the technology we need now with solar and wind and batteries and electric vehicles and more. And I think we're getting some of the policy changes we need, like the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which is the biggest and best climate legislation any country's ever passed, and changes in other countries like uh, uh, well, Australia changed its uh, government and its policies a month after President Biden and, uh, passed his bill. Uh, and, and then a month after that, Brazil changed governments and policies. And the EU has been a stalwart in resisting the efforts by Vladimir Putin to blackmail them and to knuckling under to what he wants them to do with his evil invasion of Ukraine. And instead, they're accelerating their transition. So I think we've really got some momentum. But the hard truth is that even with all the scientists' warnings and even with Mother Nature underscoring uh, the validity of those warnings, we're still uh, seeing the crisis get worse faster than we're deploying the solutions. I think we're about to shift gears and shift into high gear. I certainly hope that's the case.
0: Well, I do, too. And I guess... I guess what still baffles me is that there's still divisions on this. When you first warned about it in 1993, um, it wasn't as tangible. This was really a a, a future threat. Well, it, it, it ain't. I mean, the future is now. Uh, and People can see it. And yet you still have polls that show Americans don't want to give up fossil fuel. Yeah, maybe alternative. but We want to keep our fossil fuel. At Des Moines, Weather Anchorman resigns after he gets threats for warning viewers about uh, mm. uh, about the climate crisis. So, how, I mean, we've made some progress, but how do we make more progress on changing arts and minds, if you will?
1: Well, that's a great question. And you preceded it with the, your, your premise on the, the polarization uh, of the issue. And it's only one of the issues that's been so polarized. And you, you guys have talked about this uh, previously. And, you know, you look at a whole range of issues where the not only the majority of the American people, but a good, solid supermajority of the American people feel one way, but they control enough uh, elected officials to make the policy go the other way. And one of the ways that that dichotomy is reinforced is by the the, the polarization of our politics, and the fossil fuel industries played a role in that. Uh, you know, it used to be a bipartisan issue. And and the greatest environmental presidents we've had were Republicans. uh, Teddy Roosevelt, way back, uh, and then for all the disgrace he brought on himself, Richard Nixon established the EPA and Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act. That's that. Howard Baker was uh, one of the leaders in in the Senate from my home state of Tennessee. And uh, when I went to the Congress for the first time, and and then to the Senate, there were still lots of Republicans who had good common sense and open minds, and they saw the science the same way I did, and we were able to do things in a bipartisan way. But you guys would probably be more expert on the underlying reasons for it. But I, I, for my part, I guess the nationalization of fundraising um, and the shift in media to where it's kind of a three musketeers approach on the Republican side. Now, If you everybody's got it talk the same way and believe the same way, or else they get canceled and they get a primary opponent who's uh, crazier than they are. And I think that reinforces the uh, the orthodoxy. And, and that's why we get to continued politicization of an issue like climate, even when the people are ready to move on it.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point. You you mentioned it is a global issue, as you always have noted, and you mentioned Australia and Brazil earlier, but probably the two other biggest forces uh, in addition to the United States are China and India. Both mm. of which I think you you can correct me because you you know all this, are, are are developing a lot of clean energy, but they're still deeply dependent on fossil fuels, including coal, particularly in India. Uh, do you see that starting to change?
1: Yeah, I do. I think there's actually some some good news there. Um, last year, uh, if you look at all of the new electricity generation installed in India in calendar year 2022, 93% of it was solar and wind. Uh, and yes, their overall energy consumption is uh, growing so fast that they are still building some coal plants. However, I, I believe there are only six of them under construction there now. And they have canceled a bunch more. And, and, and Modi announced last month that uh, they will not give permits for any new coal burning plants for the next five years, which means never because the cost reduction curve on electricity from solar and wind is still going down so steeply. It, does, it doesn't make any economic sense to build any coal fired plants anymore, even in India. Uh, But India and China and Brazil are, those three countries dominate the access to uh, capital among the developing countries. China's not really a developing country, but they claim to be. Uh, Now, but India, um, I think they are definitely uh, turning the corner here. Now, where China's concerned, the, the picture's a little more complicated But here's the good news. They have reached their solar and wind goals five years ahead of when they said they would. Uh, And they build more solar than the rest of the world put together. They build more wind than the rest of the world put together. But they have still been building a lot of coal plants. You're dead right on that. But here's the thing that that, uh, hasn't been noticed as much. Their utilization rate of these coal plants is only 50%. And, and uh, two years ago and last year, they had such a deep drought in China, virtually the entire country, that their hydroelectric power, of which they have a lot, was cut back tremendously. And they had some power outages. And the Chinese Communist Party appears to have kind of panic a little bit and say, we don't want any source of disruption, you know, or uh, disturbance of the peace. And so we're going to build extra coal plants just to have it on hand in case we need it. So the the utilization rate of being fifty percent or less is a, I guess a small saving grace, but they should be doing more, and the world is has been calling on them uh, to do more. And, and John Kerr will be going there next week, uh, and of course Janet Yellen was there this week and and made climate part of uh, a main part of her yep. talk. And Bl- Secretary Blinken was there last week, so I think that relationship is warming up to the point where our cooperation with them on climate can start again.
0: James Carville. So, sir, as you
3: can imagine, I live in almost ground zero of climate in South Louisiana, yep. given hurricanes, hot, rising temperatures, sea level rise, subsidence. I mean, we could get hit and everything. And there's a you know, famous, you know, you presented with something terrible, and at first you deny it, then you resist it, and then mm. at the end, acceptance. I got to tell you, I'm having bad thoughts creep into my mind. Like mm. we've blown this goddamn thing, mm. and if we if we just if we did everything that 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 you know Al Gore said we need to do, I don't know if we could save ourselves anyway. We're we're just we're in a doom loop. Talk me mm. out of the doom loop. Are we in a doom loop? Is there still time to do something? Because I, I I just got to be honest, I, 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 I I'm, I'm in a. I'm in a not very good place right now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, and that's unlike you, James. Yeah, I know. Uh, I I really appreciate you asking the question because you are actually speaking for a whole lot of people who are harboring similar feelings. You know, the old cliche, denial ain't just a river in Egypt. Well, (laughs) despair ain't just a tire in the trunk either. And uh, we're seeing uh, some evidence of climate despair. But here is, here is some good news that I hope will cheer you up. First of all, the, the antidote for despair is action, so we all need to be doing more. But here is some really good news that comes out of the latest uh, scientific report from the IPCC, as you know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Here's what they have found out, and they've triple-checked it, and it's a fact, according to them, if we get to what they call true net zero where we stop making net additions to the burden of pollution in the sky the temperatures will stop going up in as little as three years and flatten out and and that is a new finding they used to think that we were uh, triggering some of these positive feedback loops as they call them that would keep the warming going even after we stopped adding to the global warming pollution, but they know that's not the case. Now, if we get to true net zero, the temperatures will stop going up right away, three to five years, Uh, and even better, if we stay at true net zero, we would see half of all of the human-caused CO2 come out of the atmosphere into the upper ocean and the trees and vegetation within as little as 25 to 30 years. And that would bring the concentration way down and we could now some things will continue even if the temperature stopped going up we've triggered the ice melting and you know the great ice sheets of Greenland and Antarctica that will continue but we can slow down the rate of melting Uh, we can extend the period of time when people in low-lying areas have to move Uh, but we can stop the temperature and we can start the process of healing by letting all that global warming pollution start falling out of the atmosphere and it'll come out far quicker than people ever thought was possible. So we can do this. Uh, And, you know, you think back, uh, uh, James, about the feelings of despair that must have been in the hearts of some of those civil rights marchers or the abolitionists or the women suffragists. And you look at all these morally based causes where we have finally succeeded. There were times when despair overtook People, even some of the heroes of those movements. And, 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 and yet, when the underbrush was cleared away and the central question to be decided was revealed as a choice between right and wrong, <laughs> then the outcome became foreordained. Uh, and I think that's the pathway we're on with this. Climate crisis, so hang in there, buddy. Uh, you- I, I,
3: I, I'm back to resistance. Let's bang the helmet against the, the steel locker. <laughs> let's go get him Let's go get him Let's coach. Come on. we go something here, Al. Let's, let's get on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I watched the uh, Oliver Stone movie on nuclear. Yeah. I've got to tell you, I, I walked away. I ne- I've always been kind of pro-nuclear, just like. Shit, mm-hmm. you can be you know what, what you, do you think nuclear is a valuable tool going forward or, or, or what's your general view about it?
1: another great question uh and of course i represented oak ridge tennessee and right. uh, i used to be a wildly enthusiastic supporter of nuclear it, it kind of has disappointed me severely over the years um and, and i'm not anti-nuclear in any way and i think uh just to begin with, these nuclear plants that are due to be closed in the U.S., the ones where we can get a pretty good solid assurance of their safety should be kept operating. Uh, now, now whether you want to uh, build new nuclear plants, that's a, a different question because they've become so dang uh, expensive, the utilities right. don't want to buy them. They don't want to build them. And the right. ones that have built them have they've suffered much larger cost overruns and much longer construction delays. Look at it this way. If you're the CEO of, a, of the Southern Company, say, or you're the CEO mm-hmm. of an electric utility and you wanna build a new nuclear power plant, two of the first questions you would ask your executive team are number one, how much is it gonna cost? And number two, how long will it take before we can sell electricity from it to our customers? And there's not a single engineering consulting firm in North America or Europe who will sign an opinion giving you an answer to either one of those questions. And so you've got to go into a multi-billion-dollar project not having any confidence in how much it's going to end up costing or how long it's going to be. And the overruns have have been longer and larger than anything except hydroelectric dams. Uh, And and the cost of the electricity that uh, is produced makes it non-competitive. Uh, I, let me tell you, uh, I don't want to spend too much time on right. this, but I had, I lived through this, James, in the Tennessee Valley. Tennessee Valley Authority, back in the early 70s, we were seeing uh, increased electricity use uh, going up 7% per year, compounded. And so they started 21 new nuclear power plants. Uh, and then the OPEC oil embargo hit, uh, and the price of oil went sky high, and back then they substituted coal for oil more than they do now, uh, and so the coal went up, and the electricity prices went up, and people started conserving. And Jimmy Carter said, "You know, we need to put on a sweater and spit one of the, uh, you know," and and uh, he was right about all that. Anyway. Instead of having a 7% annual increase in the use of electricity in the TVA region, it went to 1%. And they had to cancel, I believe it was 19 of the 21. And we're still, ratepayers are still paying for the partly completed uh, plants that are never be completed. Uh, I used to get in town town hall meetings, farmers would halfway joke and we use that cooling tower as a big silo for our grain. I mean, and they're, and they're dotted around. So the utilities have... Uh, a kind of a PTSD experience here, right. and they don't want to get back into that because just as the uncertainty of what's happening to electricity demand played out after OPEC, it's playing out again with the onrushing solar and wind electricity, which is by far the cheapest electricity in the world. And they don't know whether they're going to be able to sell uh, what they're producing from a nuclear power plant, and they don't. And if they've got to wait fifteen years instead of ten years. And pay $15 billion instead of $10 billion. And they have that uncertainty. They just don't want to do it. Now, there are these new small, and Oliver in his movie uh, talks about the small modular reactors. Right. I've got a, a friend named Hal Harvey who's an energy expert, and he puts it this way. He says these new, this new generation of small modular reactors, he said they're really something. They're smaller, cheaper, safer, and don't exist. Uh, and, 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 uh, and uh, you know the advocates keep saying they will exist well I hope I hope they do I hope they have a breakthrough on them. I'm all for it if they can assure us it's safe and I think the safety problems have, as Oliver Stone says been exaggerated and I think we I think nuclear will play a role. I just think that it's probably not ever again going to play as big a role now fusion you know if 10 15 years from now that may actually, I had had hearings on fusion 45 years ago, and they said it was 50 years off, so I'm getting excited.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Before I talk, my only idea I've known about about engineering in the world and technology, and if the people at MIT and Chinese technical university or, you know, India must have great technical schools in Europe, if we could just have a crash thing to design a more affordable nuclear reactor, they're mm-hmm. off the shelf. Like, you know, I mean, it's, it sounds ridiculous, but you and I know a yeah. Waffle House. Waffle House, they come in, and they build those goddamn things in two weeks. Yeah. I mean, it takes no time at all because they got And one, they're not
1: radioactive at all. They're not radioactive <laughs> at all. <They're> a little <laughs> slow on the surface
3: at Bay St. Louis this morning, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but what I'm saying is if the world could come together yeah. and design a, a, a standard – it doesn't have to be the greatest thing in the world, nuclear plant and, you know, one place, you know, you fabricate the parts and you ship them. Maybe we could make some difference. But mm. if the, what what is more promising, solar or wind?
1: Well, solar has been uh, outperforming and both of them are just going like gangbusters. Right. Uh, but solar is the one that's really taking off uh, fastest. They're now selling electricity from some of these new solar plants at less than two cents a kilowatt hour. And that's, uh, <laughs> that's a level far below what anybody ever thought would be possible. So, yes, it, it's really skyrocketing. Wind is, uh, uh, wind is also growing very, very rapidly, just not as quite as fast as solar. The next big push on wind is going to be the offshore wind.
3: Right, right. And
1: President Biden just approved the biggest uh, new offshore wind facility, uh, I think maybe last month. Uh, So both of them are taking over. The International Energy Agency says solar is the new king of energy markets. That's the phrase they used, uh, And the cheapest electricity in all of history. So it's the big winner. And by the way, we get enough solar energy from the sun in one hour, more than the entire world's energy usage for a full year. So Uh, You know, a lot of it falls on the ocean, et cetera. But if we can just harvest a higher fraction of that, then then, you know, we're going to solve a lot of these problems. And and that is now happening.
0: Albert, Uh, just a couple more, Mr. Vice President. Um, I'm worried because you just walked James off the ledge. I mean, we have him now. So he's at least (laughs) so I don't want to put him. I I don't want to put him back on the ledge. But the new (laughs) House Republican majority's first legislative priority, H.R. 1. (laughs) <laughs> sharply increase oil and gas productions, roll back some of the green energy initiatives. It's not going to be enacted now, but if they win in 2024, it will be. What would the impact of that be?
1: <laughs> well, it you know, it has a kind of a King Canute uh, feeling to it. To me, uh, they, they can't stop the tide of history. And by the way, in uh, so many of the red states, particularly in the part of the country where James and I live, uh, Tennessee, and Louisiana, all of the southeast, um, you are seeing so many electric vehicle factories and solar That's farms bigger. and battery factories, and they may not want to even use the word climate. But my goodness, they are now, we're seeing a, a change in the political landscape with the economic reality of tens of thousands, more than that, of new jobs in this green economy, particularly in a lot of the red states, and I think that's going to change the dynamic. Now, what if they if 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 the Republicans did um, uh, take over? Oh gosh, I don't even want to. You're going to put me on the ledge now, uh, <laughs> James. You ought to come out. You you ought to get back into American uh, political consulting and save yeah. us from that fate.
3: <laughs> I, you know, Mr. Vice President, I've been talking to some people now, on this show. I want to continue this a more effective communication strategy. <laughs> when you started out in 1993, the power imbalance between fossil fuels and green was a 1,000 a, a to 1. Yeah. All right? We're still behind. Yeah. But, you know, that's a big—the solar, the wind, the nuclear, the people in it. I mean, we, we're amassing some political power here that I think we should think about leveraging mm. because— of course, the most profitable business in the history of mankind is the extraction, refinement and distribution of fossil fuels. I understand that. But I'm just saying that don't you agree that the gap is closing, that we now have some economic power on the green side that yeah, we did def- have when you started this crusade?
1: I definitely agree with you, James, and the, the number of jobs. The, the the studies show that a dollar invested in the green economy produces three times as many jobs as a dollar invested in the old fossil economy. And and, and a lot of mayors uh, and governors and county uh, leaders are, are really uh, n- taking notice and recruiting uh, new green employment opportunities. And by the way, these uh, so-called exponential curves, I mean, you think uh, they're hard to figure sometimes. Uh, just, you know, I'm equipped mainly with common sense, but you see these exponential curves and they kind of jar you sometimes. Um, you, you think about the, uh, the introduction of cell phones, for example, uh, when, when they began to, to, to come into the marketplace, it took a little time at first, but then they just took over. A lot of people don't even have landlines, uh, I- anymore. And, you know, for us, I am I'm the same way now, Me. uh, right. and I, I never could have imagined that. Well, we're, we're seeing that with a bunch of these new technologies. This is a sustainability revolution that covers not just renewable energy and electric vehicles, but a whole range of efficiency and conservation. And this sustainability revolution is probably has the magnitude of the industrial revolution coupled with the speed of the digital revolution. Uh, and it is gonna reshape our lives and our economy. And in the process, I think it's gonna do exactly what you just laid out. It's gonna give people a stake in continuing the the economic benefits that come with the sustainability green revolution.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I'm I'm off the ledge and in the war room. (laughs) Well, before we go, I just want to say you left Washington 22 years ago. You left voluntarily. Well, you won that election. Uh, It wasn't your fault, but we won't get it. But what's remarkable. No comment. The the life you have led since then has been remarkable. You didn't find time to solve. Just tell our listeners out there the stuff you're doing.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. I, I, I'm thinking this uh, seems like my grandson playing t-ball. You've set it up for me. <laughs> um, well, I, you know, I've tried to be useful, Al, and I, I, uh, I, I, I focused on communicating about the climate crisis. I had a great mentor back in my undergraduate days who got me on to this, and I never intended to devote my life to it. Uh, I just kind of fell into it. And and once you get into something like this, you can't put it down. Uh, So I've been um, training grassroots activists all around the world. I've got one in uh, South Korea next month. Uh, I've got one uh, in Ghana in West Africa. After that, a a big one in New York City in the first quarter next year. I've also uh, I also have helped put together a coalition called Climate Trace, which is an artificial intelligence based organization. coalition that measures the source of all the global warming pollution every significant site around the world and my main business activity I have uh, I co-founded an investment firm with my friend David blood 20 years ago uh, it'll be 20 years uh, in September uh, and uh, we have focused on proving the business case that you can invest money in keeping with this this uh, agenda of reducing global warming pollution and not uh, disadvantage your clients. You can actually outperform, and I'm knocking on wood when I tell you thus far we have by good ways. Uh, and I have found that enormously uh, satisfying and and and, uh, and a lot of fun. Now, uh, I also spent a lot of time on my farm in Tennessee, which I've converted to a regenerative agriculture farm, and some of that's just stuff that the old-timers uh, knew about a long time ago, but it's uh, it's really helpful in putting carbon back in the topsoil uh, and making the soil more fertile. And so you those, have
0: forums so, there, don't you, with 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 farmers? You have regenerative farmer uh, yeah. conferences down in down in. Carson. Yeah,
1: I have an annual conference on my farm called called the Climate Underground, um, and it's a farmer led movement. You know, there's less plowing and more of uh, trees in the pastures, uh, so the. Animals can cool off, rotational grazing, cover crops, always keep roots in the soil. Uh, And when I was a boy, my father taught me a lot of lessons on the farm. One time when I was about five years old, he took me to find the most fertile soil on the farm. Uh, And when we got to it, I held it in my hand and it was dark, black and moist. And I'm embarrassed it took me another 50 years before I understood why it was black and true story. It's black because that's the carbon. Uh, and it's moist because when the soil is rich in organic carbon, then all the little uh, fungal networks and the bacteria, all the little critters in the soil, the old, the, the so-called modern approach said, let's just nuke them with chemicals and just put this, the, the seed in we want to grow without understanding what the old timers did know. And that is the life forms in the, in the soil. That, that's the difference between soil and dirt. You want, you want those life forms to help the plants grow. Anyway, I didn't want to get sidetracked into this, but I spent a lot of time on it. And, uh, yes, this year's conference will be coming up in October.
0: James, before we go, I want you to tell the vice president what you often say uh, about uh, how he's been right. You know,
1: I, I
3: put it in a book. And I don't know if anybody showed it to you, but I said that at the time I wrote the book, it was probably early, early in this century, that Al Gore had been right about more things than any person that I ever knew. And oh, I, I think, I, well, it, it's true. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I mean, I think of things that you did, you know, like the welfare reform, like like airlines, you know, the air safety, you know, we, 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 airline safety wasn't worth a crap in the start of the 90s and, you know, the improvements and the, the airport security. And I I don't want to revisit a, a lot of this stuff, but I mean, the, the detailed attention was legendary that you would pay attention to the daily briefing from the CIA. Um, I mean, the stories are legendary about you going out to Langley and, you know, following up and asking that. So I... You know, and you know, I've sit here and you know, woulda, shoulda, coulda, but you never knew at your age psychiatry would be a new profession to talk James Garfield off the ledge. (laughs) Back to the room, but I, I, I I mean every word of it. So I wrote it, and I, I will stand by it to this day. And it was. uh... By the way, how the vowels gonna be this year?
1: It's it's another rebuilding here, James. <laughs> okay, that Mr. Vice President, idea. you
0: tell your grandson that we can tee up that tee ball every bit
1: <laughs> as much <laughs> as, as he
0: can. We're, we're well. Eager. No,
1: I, I don't want to. I don't want to miss saying thank you, James, for such kind words, and thank true. you both for belatedly inviting me to come on your uh, <laughs> podcast and. Uh, <laughs> and uh, You know, James, I want to tell you this story before we quit here. Uh, I was having lunch with Al uh, maybe a year ago, and we started talking about you. Uh -uh. And right at that moment, his phone rang, and it was you on the phone. I I don't – I'm not going to get into – ESP, but I've had, <laughs> another, I've had enough experiences. I'm sure you guys have, too, where, when you're talking about somebody or think All of a sudden, you know, anyway, I thought that was uh, quite a coincidence.
3: Yeah, I'll be too many bad spy novels. They're no coincidences. I saw the guy in Prague, and it was the
1: same guy in Berlin. I know what I'm getting into.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly how this podcast started, Mr. Vice President. I was huh? having a breakfast with someone, and they said, geez, who, would your wife do this with you? I said, I don't think so. And James called, and he said, that's it. James Carvone, you.
1: Oh, no, no kidding. Oh, man. Well, James is the one with the ESPN (laughs) (laughs) talent.
0: Listen, sir, thank thank you so much. This has been such a a pleasure for us. Absolutely.
1: Great pleasure for me, and thank you both for inviting me, and uh, God bless.
0: You know, James, congressional Republicans have a simple investigative strategy. Smear Biden in order to vindicate Trump or at least distract attention from Trump's multiple indictments. Now, the prize was going to be Hunter Biden and how some of his transgressions could be linked to his father. Well, after a long investigation, the Trump-appointed U.S. attorney, David Wise, cut cut a plea deal with Hunter on taxes and gun registration. The Trump brigade, however, goes crazy. Jim G.Y.M., you can tell us later why we call him G.Y.M. Jordan, Jim Comer, the often loony Senator Ron Johnson, and the 89-year-old Chuck Grassley, or more likely his staff, have yelled conspiracy. Weiss is part of a Trump-hating deep state. But an IRS investigator says the Justice Department interfered in the case. Not so, says Mary Garland. Now, James, I don't know anything about this IRS whistleblower, as opposed to another one we'll talk about, and I'm sure he's Uh, He is well-meaning, but IRS agents are investigators. They mainly deal with taxes. They are not experts on criminal indictments or judicial actions or venues. Uh, There are charges that Attorney General Garland, a man of impeccable integrity, is lying. Kevin McCarthy, of all people, makes that case. That's utter, of course, nonsense. But then there is the favorite. Which I am going to turn over to you to tell our listeners about, James. And that's Comer said the whistleblower, Gal, tell me how I pronounce his last name, is going to break open the Biden corruption case. What has Mr. Gal broken open, James? Well, it's broken
3: open an eight count indictment. That's one thing he's broken open. And of course, there was famously he met with investigators in Brussels in 2019. Well, if I know I'm getting ready to get indicted, uh, you know, I say I know something explosive, and uh, under the theory that maybe they'll they'll back off, or he now has an excuse. I have no idea. I, I, I hope that they call him. I don't think he, he's a fugitive from justice. So he's the on the lam. It's going to be hard to land, find. going so could be kind of hard to find. Uh, they say, well, the guy's still got credibility. Uh, okay, sure. It, you know, look, look at, and by the way, of course, it, it is an indictment, but it, it, that what's alleged in it is that he was backdooring a deal from the two things that the MAGA world hates as much as anything else, Iran, and backdooring a deal to circumvent sanctions to sell to China. All right? That doesn't even give them any pause. Not, not, not for one minute does that give them any pause. And, you know, they, they pass all this stupid anti-China legislation and these stupid legislatures and the stupid stuff. But unfortunately, we're never going to get to see this guy because he's on the lam. If they catch him, his lawyer is not going to let him say a word. And these people just keep making fools of themselves. I mean, real fools. Yeah. In, in, I I don't know. I'd be embarrassed if I was him.
0: Tell us why you call Jim Jordan G Y M Jordan. Some of our listeners. Well, are Jim,
3: ask. he was a assistant wrestling coach at the Ohio State University, uh-huh. and they had a, a, a team doctor who, uh, frankly, would stick his finger up the anus oh, of James, uh, the wrestlers James. and, and oh. would fondle their testicles, and it was a went on for. I, a a long period of time. Uh, They finally fired the guy, paid a bunch of judgments, but GYM Jordan said he didn't know anything about it, which is utterly preposterous. And I think as you point out, eight wrestlers come up and said, of course he knew. That's nothing that happens in a wrestling locker room that everybody doesn't know. And it's preposterous. And this needs to be brought front and center. It's 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 it really goes to the credibility of the guy. It goes to his values. I mean, if you if you don't care about pedophilia and sexual abuse, I don't know what you care about.
0: Yeah, and so far he has managed to cover this up. I hope that doesn't that doesn't I, continue. I do, I, I do uh, too. But the, the Democrats have helped him
3: by not constantly referring to that. And of course, we had the other Jim Republican, Dennis
0: Hassard, the longest serving. Republican Speaker in history, who ended up in the penitentiary for abuse, for abusing high school kids yeah. and then trying to pay them off. James, on the you know oversight can be an important function of Congress, and there have been some very tough liberal Democrats. I think of John Dingell and Henry Waxman, who've conducted really, really tough oversight uh, investigations. But a, it takes time. It takes a staff that's interested in getting the facts. It takes a determined chairman. You can't make it just a political witch hunt because it ain't going to work. None of those qualities are present in either the House Judiciary Committee or the special whatever they call it, weaponization subcommittee or in Jim Comer's oversight committee. All they want to do is score political points. That's a lousy way to have investigations, and it shows because they're really making fools of themselves. Well, you know why they make fools of themselves?
3: Well, because they the are fools, they are fools. That 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 that's a common trait of a fool. Will make a fool of himself. Good point. And I I what what I'm kind of torn on. coma. I don't know if he's a full fool, a fool or he's just goddamn stupid. I, I, it looks like there's evidence that that both are prevalent uh, about this guy. And of course they're not going to call the person. Of course they're going to go and make up something else. that's going to go nowhere. But what I've come to realize, and I talked about this at the congress, our people are just a lot smarter than their people. They just really are. And the more that they try to do, the more they're going to get their asses handed to them. And I think it's kind of like this. You know, he's a Clinton, Clinton too the smartest candidate. He's like being the smartest of the Three Stooges. But we are, our people are a lot smarter than him, a lot better lawyers. And I don't know how, how much more they want to keep getting hit, but they've been hit pretty hard.
0: Well, we'll keep on this. We'll keep yes, on
3: sir, this one. For sure.
0: James, our guest is Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, representative from Illinois and the top Democrat on the House Select Committee on China. First, Congressman, how did I do in that pronunciation?
2: That was perfect, Al. And uh, just as an aside, when I first ran for office, I said, hi, my name is Raja Krishnamurthy," And the person in Chicago said, Roger Christian Murphy. So you got (laughs) to...
0: I, 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 think we'll, I think we'll stick with Congressman. Um, let me ask you first. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about China today. Any significance to you reading the Treasury Secretary Yellen's recent mission to China?
2: Well, I think that she um, is establishing a good relationship, a working relationship with her counterparts who uh, were newly chosen uh, since um, you know the last Party Congress. Uh, no monumental agreements came out of it, but I think that uh, she was able to. Uh, clearly uh, express our concerns about economic aggression on the part of the Chinese Communist Party and, um, you know, be able to hopefully dispel some misconceptions about our intentions uh, with regard to China as well.
0: Well, I, I know you have said Democrats ought to take up this issue that they're the Chinese have engaged in some, chican- some economic chicanery that uh, Democrats should call them out for. What what is the Biden administration's strategic policy on China today?
2: I think that it's a uh, uh, it probably involves a few different things. One is making sure we discourage or deter aggression on the part of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, so for. For instance, uh, military aggression against Taiwan, as well as its neighbors in the Indo-Pacific region. Secondly, kind of combating unfair trade practices, whether it's intellectual property theft or cyber hacking, or, um, you know, basically using slave labor through the, uh, you know, the Uyghur genocide in Xinjiang province. Um, And then third, kind of investing in America. So uh, through the chips and signs, Act, as well as other initiatives, making sure that we are trying to attract some of that manufacturing that, as you know, decades ago, went to China and other places and, and bringing it back home.
0: The, the, the administration also has retained a number of the Trump tariffs. How effective do you think these tariffs are?
2: Well, I think that uh, in certain industries, they were vital to preserve those industries. And some of them are of great national uh, security significance. So, for instance, the steel tariffs in the steel industry. As you know, that's uh, in some, in some ways vital to our defense industrial base. And um, without those tariffs, the Chinese were going to be dumping at a cost so low that they would have driven most of our companies out of business. So, in that regard, uh, um, the Trump-Biden tariffs, if you will, have been effective, And so they should stay on? I think with regard to certain industries, yes. Um, I think that, uh, unfortunately, we're just seeing some of these unfair trade practices continue uh, from China. And as long as they continue and if we want to preserve some of these industries, uh, I think the tariffs are appropriate in certain instances.
0: Well, uh, I'm going to turn it over to James Carville. Just I mean, one, one more question. There, there's a strong sense, I think, of a wide consensus that ban the export of any technologies to China that would enhance their military capabilities. But as I read what you've written, I don't think you want to limit a lot of other investments or transactions. That can be a pretty narrow lane. How do you, how
2: do you walk it? It's a great question, Al. I think that the Biden administration now is trying to come up with the right, Uh, set of policies to kind of direct, you know, where the uh, lines should be drawn with regard to what's called outbound investments in China. Uh, As an example, I don't think that we should necessarily be investing in some of these high-end technologies like artificial intelligence or facial recognition that could be used by the Chinese Communist Party to repress its own people or to be used in uh, hypersonic missiles or nuclear programs or other endeavors that could threaten our national security. Um, But in certain other places, like, I don't know, consumer products is an example. Um, You know, I think that we, you know, may not have as great of a concern in, you know, potentially investments there. Although, as I mentioned earlier, we always are trying to bring supply chains back home to the extent possible, or at least diversify our supply chains and bring manufacturing jobs back home, too. James. Oh, is great. Uh, I guess the headline of the interview will be
3: the LSU Tiger interviews with Tomorrow <laughs> Tiger. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't mean to associate with the group, but it's just kind of a, some things, you, when you get a good line, you just got to use it, you know? Well, I,
2: I'm, 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 a Brit, I'm a big uh, James Carville fan as well, so thank uh, great. you. So, you're on the oversight committee.
3: I, I can't get enough of the whistleblower. Uh, can you give us some insight into the whistleblower and exactly who is this distinguished and honorable citizen of the world. <laughs> <laughs> we are we are talking, James,
0: about the whistleblower that was just it, indicted. It was
3: whistleblower that was just indicted. That was uh, the 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 guy was going to come in the Trump card, I guess, if you will, but the the nuclear witness that was going to blow everything up. It it not working out too well, as I appreciate. Well, can you bring our audience up to
2: date on, <laughs> on this dude? <laughs> Well, it turns out that he was uh, some kind of a, a Chinese asset. And I think that, um, you know, unfortunately, what we're seeing is some of these whistleblowers that um, our my distinguished colleagues on the right uh, tend to talk about um, have a lot of problems in their past. And this is just one good example of that. So I have this
3: general thing. I want to ask you a serious question. I would think you got the Democrats on a committee and other committees. We're just a lot smarter than they are. All right. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm serious. It's just an observation. When you are I watch people like you, or, or Congressman Goldman, that that the lady from the Virgin Islands, shit, she might have a IQ of 200. She's so goddamn smart, you know. <laughs> but I and I I look at them and they will look like they should have been held back another year. You know, they they graduated <laughs> too fast. But anyway, y'all doing? A, a great job, but I want to ask you a foreign policy question. I don't, I understand that there's friction between India and China. And, I, you know, for what it's worth, supposedly India just eclipsed China as the most populous nation in the world. What's the background of this sort of friction between India and China? Is it historic or is it higher now than it normally is? Is it something that we should worry about? What what What's the view from afar here?
2: Well, it, you know, basically it stems from. Uh, territorial disputes uh, in the Himalayas, essentially, Um, and along their border uh, uh, through some very treacherous terrain. Um, In 1962, there was a war between the two countries. Um, And at that time, you know, China really, um, you know, by most experts' accounts, uh, won that war, took a lot of territory. And ever since then, the Indians uh, have been, fortifying their frontiers, uh, making sure that, um, you know, such a thing doesn't happen again. And in recent times, uh, there have continued to be a a lot of, um, I guess, skirmishes along the line of control. It's called the line of control. And um, the U.S., uh, for its part, um, has an eye on the Intelligence Committee, um, have said that this is just yet another example of the Chinese throwing their elbows militarily at their, fr- at their neighbors, uh, whether it's the Indians in the Himalayas or whether it's, you know, Taiwan or whether it's uh, Indonesia, Philippines and Vietnam in the South China Sea. Um, and so that's something that is um, of great concern to us because, you know, when they decide that instead of trying to resolve their differences with their neighbors at the bargaining table, they use coercion or force, that's when bad things happen, uh, including wars. And we don't want that to happen in the Indo-Pacific region. We need a stable environment. So so, uh, the president
3: hosted the Indian prime minister at the White House. There was some brouhaha about that. Did you support that invitation and think it was a good idea?
2: Yeah, I think that, um, you know, India and the U.S. have this incredibly um, close relationship now on many levels. Security, commerce, of course, the 4.5 million Indian-Americans, of which I'm one, uh, helped to cement that relationship. And the Biden administration rolled out the red carpet, not for just an individual, but for a country uh, in bringing the two countries closer together at, at all those levels. And so I think it was, it was appropriate at the same time. As you know, there are concerns about, um, you know, there's concerns about pressure, um, on, uh, in different ways that, uh, make, you know, democracy in India, um, kind of more fragile now than it was before. Um, and I've brought up some of these concerns, uh, with my, counterparts, uh, in the Indian government. And they remind me that your democracy is no cup of tea either. And, and, and basically we, but, but, but here's the thing, James, I think that we have to continue to engage on all these levels and we have to remember that there's a, there's a model, an authoritarian dictatorial model. That's much, much different than anything that the Indians or the U S or our friends or partners or allies have. And that's the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, um, where freedom is uh, is non-existent. Uh, Free enterprise is non-existent uh, for the most part, except it's controlled by the the state. And um, it's a it's we're in active competition with it. Thank you, sir. Albert.
0: Uh, let me uh, go back to China. I think those answers on India were really interesting. I may have one or two more. Your Republican counterpart on the China committee, uh, Chairman Mike Gallagher, comes across as a MAGA hawk. Uh, he says China is going to be a major issue in the 2024
2: election. Do you agree? I think it's going to be a big issue for a long time to come. I think that we Democrats uh, have to take a strong position on this particular issue in the sense that not only are we concerned about you know de- deterring and discouraging aggression military aggression by the chinese and combating you know economic unfair trade practices and practices and the like but we have to up our game in this country in terms of investing in our own workforce Uh, investing in our own ability to compete at the highest levels against the Chinese and others. Um, And that means, for instance, I've been passionate about working on uh, kind of improving our nation's skills-based and vocational education system for the two-thirds of Americans who don't have a four-year college degree, but don't have a world-class education system, post-secondary education system. It also means investing in AI, quantum, robotics, nanoscale uh, engineering, and so forth, so that we continue to be innovators in these areas. So as Democrats, we have an important vision to offer with regard to our competition with China. And so we should be talking about it every bit as much as they do.
0: Congressman, you have called out China correctly, I believe, for some of their bad Economic and trade practices, and and say that America and Democrats have to address this. There have also been about a hundred anti-Chinese bills in state legislatures this year, trying to bar Chinese from owning certain properties or even going to some universities. How much of this is racism?
2: A lot of it is racism, Al, uh, but some of it is important as well. I think that where you can distinguish between xenophobia. Um, and, and, And I think legitimate concerns is where I think the restrictions, for instance, on buying land, let's say, are directed at, for instance, entities controlled by the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, or affiliated with the CCP, as opposed to, you know, Chinese nationals who don't have a citizenship, as an example. I'm very concerned about the laws being proposed in Texas and the one that was signed in Florida and South Carolina that basically prevent green card holders uh, of of Chinese origin who are permanent residents, who, by the way, um, are U.S. nationals for the purposes of a lot of laws governing security issues, um, from being able to buy land. And that, that to me, looks a lot like those... um, Chinese uh, land exclusion laws that California uh, started out this, the last century with, um, and I think that that type of um, legislation is is very disturbing. Uh, James mm-hmm. r-
0: raised a very important question of China and China vis a vis, excuse me, of India and India vis a vis China. Um, how much of a Pacific? ally is india here i mean if the chinese invade taiwan i don't expect the indian navy is going to be accompanying us there but 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 how how close is the u.s india alliance in the pacific
2: um i would not i would not characterize india as an ally in the sense of a treaty ally we don't have that type of a relationship with them uh nor do they want that quite frankly from from what i understand but we we are very close partners and friends with regards to intelligence sharing, with regards to um, uh, helping to um, assist each other with patrolling international waters, which, as you know, are contested throughout the region. Right. Um, you know, you, you don't have to. Uh, seen the flap over the Barbie movie, which showed uh, (laughs) over the entire South China Sea to know that uh, a lot of what we call international waters, China considers its own territory. And so the Indians, along with uh, Australians, the U.S., the Japanese and others, um, are actively trying to make sure those, um, those waters and that airspace is available to commercial traffic and otherwise, and uh, that's very important. James Carville. Uh, so, Congressman, you're going to be sharing the show with, a, with another guest, uh,
3: former Vice President Al Gore. And obviously, we're going to ask uh, the former Vice President about climate. And you're on the Intelligence Committee, you're a very, very informed person. As you see it, how is climate going to, how's our Defense Department, what unique challenges it present, and what unique challenges to global security you think that climate's going to present to us over the next 25 years?
2: Well, my goodness. Um, Yeah, that's a great question. I think that you're absolutely right. (laughs) you're, you're, You're absolutely right that the Defense Department is actively looking at this issue from multiple vantage points, um, one is I'm 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 the chair of the Congress. I'm co-chair of the Congressional Solar Caucus with a guy named Ralph Norman, by the way, who's a right. member of the Freedom Caucus. And uh, Norman and I, who couldn't be more different, you know. I, I like to joke. his he's a conservative uh, Freedom Caucus member named Ralph, and I'm pretty much the opposite of that <laughs> in all <laughs> dimensions. Uh, of of what you could think of. But um, he and I actually authored legislation that got the Defense Department to invest more in solar as a way to power um, our defense needs, especially on military bases and in far-flung areas of the world. This was during the Trump administration. And so this is kind of a bipartisan issue in the sense that renewables and Uh, making sure that we're ready for an energy transition along with fighting climate change are are something that the military is actively thinking about long term. But the other big issue which we're facing is that, um, you know, climate change is also going to potentially be the source of conflict uh, in different parts of the world as uh, water scarcity becomes more um, acute, uh, as there's a greater uh, competition for resources, um and I think that uh the Defense Department is also thinking about where that is more likely to occur than in other places. Finally, I would just say um, the Defense Department is also uh aware of you know there you know a lot of rare earths and critical minerals are very key to the um uh, kind of innovative renewable energy solutions of the future. And the Chinese um, have a chokehold with regard to a lot of these particular rare earths and critical elements. And so from a national security standpoint and a defense standpoint, we are also trying to figure out how are we going to source these things elsewhere? Not only are they critical to Uh, are renewable energy solutions of the future and fighting climate change, but it so happens that those same things are critical to certain defense um, industrial uh, purposes as well. And so I think they are monitoring that and trying to figure out what's our solution there too. Oh well,
3: thank you. We didn't. We, we're going to go easier on you. Frank Wizard said you're the best junk person in the Congress. <laughs> but, uh, Albert, well, thank, and thank you been, for your time, Congressman.
0: Yeah, I was, and I was going to say, but Frank and my wife are both going to be delighted and very surprised that I correctly pronounced your name. But uh, I cannot tell you, <laughs> I cannot tell you how much we appreciate. You being here, and we'll be following this issue so closely over the next uh, couple of years. Thank you, Congressman.
2: Well, thank you so much. I, I, like I said, my family and I have been big fans of yours, the two of you, and so they're going to be thrilled to uh, hear this podcast. <laughs>
3: okay. Well, thank you, sir.
2: <laughs> Take care. Thank you.
0: And now for our outrages of the week. You know, if this weren't so appallingly hypocritical, it'd be funny. Mitch McConnell criticizing Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer for trying to politicize the Supreme Court, charging they don't understand the court really is an independent and above partisan politics. Most Americans don't understand that either because it's not true. This is a partisan Republican court, illicitly put together by Senator McConnell in 2016 with the Democratic president McConnell the Senate Democratic or the Senate Republican leader decided it would be an eight-member court for a year refusing to even allow a vote on President Obama's nomination of the highly qualified Merrick Garland they claim Republicans said back then you don't confirm a justice in a presidential election year well that was a lie in 1988 a Republican president's nominee Anthony Kennedy, was confirmed by a Democratic-led Senate. But but it gets better, James. In the next presidential election year, the one after 2016, the one in 2020, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died less than seven weeks before the election. Not nine months, as was the case before. Trump immediately nominated Amy Coney Barrett. McConnell, showing disdain for any Senate procedures, gave her the bums rush, and she was confirmed 10 days before voters elected Joe Biden. She repaid the favor by speaking to the McConnell Center in Kentucky. Sure, it didn't hurt uh, the senator's fundraising. A lot of this is about money. McConnell was willing really to cheat, to assure a Republican and corporate-friendly high court. With rare exceptions, that's what he's got. Voters have never held the Supreme Court in lower esteem. It's justified. It is a Republican court. And no one is more responsible for that than the senator from Kentucky.
3: Okay, my rage is a a continuing outrage at something that I refer to as coastal credentialism. And and let me tell you how it manifests itself in the recent Supreme Court cases concerning uh, affirmative action. There were actually two cases, one brought by Harvard, one brought by the University of North Carolina. Well, if you read the paper and you listen to NPR, you would never know that the University of North Carolina existed. It just wouldn't. And Ed Luce and I were going back and forth. He had an excellent piece in the Financial Times about the arrogance of these elite Ivy League schools. They have, University of North Carolina is a state flagship. Every state has one. There's 68,000 people that go to Ivy League schools. Great. I'm all for them. They're they're bright. They're hardworking. They're great universities. You know how many people go to state flagship universities going to be affected by this? A lot more. A lot, probably, a, you know, they are 50 flagships. If you say 30,000, an average, you know, 1.8 million. And the people that are going to intersect with the, if you're in North Carolina, the chances that you have a doctor that's trained there, an attorney, a CPA, or anything else. And, you know, people, it, it, everything that happens. If it happens at Harvard, nothing happens anywhere else in the country. Nobody else is affected. These flagships are going to have a hard time because they're trying to allocate, have a student by it looks like the state that supports them. But I, I want to point out a, just an example that hit me home. This is from the local newspaper in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, a town of about 8,000, right on the Louisiana border. James Jimmy Chilomagos, a 15-year-old Bay St. Louis native, recently became the youngest person ever to pass the CPA exam. Ever. 15 years old to pass the CPA exam. And then you read further in the story, and he also holds the highest LSAT score in 23 states has earned both his bachelor's and master's degree in accounting and is registered to begin law school at Law University of New Orleans. I'm looking forward to going to law school. And he wants to go back to Mississippi and help people in Mississippi. But this guy will never be part of the conversation or the equation among coastal credentialists. And we got to recognize that's great. I'm great with the Avenue Schools. Think of what these flagship universities mean to their states and the people that live there. And why, don't, why, why, don't, why we don't exist, I have no idea, but you don't exist if you go to a state university in this culture.
0: You're right. All right, now for our Screw the Voters segment, James. National Democrats were asleep at the switch last year and seeing North Carolina as a leaning red state and a lower priority. One result, in part because of the money that poured in, was the state Supreme Court flipped to a conservative Republican majority, and they are wasting no time showing you what that means as they approve voting restrictions that the previous court rejected. In so doing, this Republican court brushed aside a trial court's verdict that a voter ID law was racially discriminatory, it was racially discriminatory. This court went even further, making the burden of proof that it discriminates, clearly it's aimed at making it harder for blacks to vote, much, much harder. Read the Brennan Center's analysis. The legislature is passing laws making voting by mail and early registration much more difficult. You can expect the state Supreme Court to rubber stamp those restrictions. North Carolina may become the only state to require both signature certification uh, for absentee voting. James, your favorite voting suppressor, Cleta Mitchell, <laughs> is out there hell-bent on making it harder for those college students to get those damn college students. Keep them in bed. Don't let them go vote. Cleta's on the case. I want you to know. Governor you know, Governor Roy Cooper, who was one of the, America's great governors, he'd veto these measures. Except a Democrat named Trisha Cotham, a pro-choice, pro-voting rights Democrat, suddenly several months ago switched sides to the Republicans, giving them a veto-proof majority. I want to challenge every Tar Heel state journalist to aggressively pursue what was the price for this switch. I suspect it wasn't cheap. No, I don't think so either. And I
3: might add that one of the most critical races coming up is the North Carolina governorship, because that's mm. the only thing you got. That That's it. You don't have the legislature. You don't have the courts. Right. You don't have anything. And and we have a particularly good candidate. And they have, a, a, a even by modern standards, a, a, a too crazy for the Freedom Caucus candidate. If that's possible. So keep your eyes on that race. It's very, 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 very
0: critical. It's, a, it's an incredibly important race. You're absolutely right. And uh, it's, um, you know, hopefully the Republicans and the Democrats can pick up, you know, uh, a seat or two in that state legislature so it's no longer a veto. Mm-hmm. Hopeful. Yeah. We should
3: because we want it. you know, what I mean, if, if it continues the way it's been going, we will.
0: Well, North Carolina is in play. Uh, it, Biden narrowly lost it last night. It's the only state that Trump carried that if there is a reasonably close election, you know, in less than five points, right. that, the de- that, that I think the Democrats have it, have a 50-50 shot of winning. Right. Uh, I, I hate to say that because I hate to write off Florida and Ohio and Iowa and a number of others. But North Carolina is their best bet. And um, Yeah, I agree. But don't forget Texas all uh, right it's texas well yeah okay. i agree I on texas on the senate race i'm not sure about the presidential race well that's what we, we got right. coming up in 2024 is the yeah senate race. I'm yeah
3: thinking.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah and i think we both agree i know the congressman from uvalde just entered the race and i'm sure he's a good guy but colin Alrad uh, is the democrats uh, strongest hope down right. there and would right. be a really terrific united states senator correct Right. Correct, but it, it, it's a
3: look. It's our best pickup opportunity. <laughs> it's
0: got to yeah, you, see, and, that and, a- and and you got a you got at least one that's gone probably, and you got one or two that are in danger. So picking up one is really you know essential. Manchin, Mansion.
3: It's not sure that this crazy person would beat Jim Justice in the Republican primary. I mean, there's a narrow path. For Joe Manchin to be reelected, and and let me tell you, all this carpeting and shit about Joe Manchin, no. it, it, it just assume that's a competitive race. You'll be so pulling for Joe Manchin on election
0: night, you won't even know him. Oh my pull god! Oh my god! Yes, and maybe you'll understand why right. some of the votes that you might hate, he had to cast. Right, it. right. It's great anyway. education. Okay, James, we're going to our listener questions. I really think they're probably as good this week as ever. Let's start off with Jim in Babcock Ranch, Florida. He says, during the next 12 months, the odds are good, he says, that Trump goes to prison, goes bankrupt, or his habits catch up with him. He's in the hunt school. It's a, it's a small group, uh, Jim, but uh, let's stick with it. And everyone hates DeSantis, and that leaves the field, which worries me. Joe Biden has been a great president. But putting all your trips to the center of the table and the assumption Trump or DeSantis will be your opponent seems like a reckless bet. Your thoughts, James? Well,
3: it's obvious. I've thought about this a lot. And if something happens to Trump, they are not going to vote for DeSantis. They hate DeSantis because DeSantis touched their king. And if, if something happened to Trump and the person that would get in, even if he got in late, would cause the most— Turnball in the republican party is j d Vance j d Vance is considered a trump loyalist to to the nth degree trump 's responsible for getting him elected of course he 'd say and do anything and he 's proven he 's flexible skilled, over the years he 's flexible but he 's skilled and he 's ambitious and i, 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 I he 's the guy that I see is the heir apparent to the bag world and our, our reader could very well be right about that it, it, the, the, just to the everything it just becomes excruciating and and he's it's wearing on him and you can see that and he now is beginning to realize that he's just got to try to stay out of jail till nine the presidential election and hope he wins because if not he's done just, yeah. he's just he's freaking done Now he might be able to put it off to the After the Republican primaries, uh, the uh, general, you know, there's this big brouhaha about this Judge Cannon uh, down in Florida, and they ask her to dismiss it on behalf of Trump, which uh, I mean, she'd have to be pretty crazy to do that, but maybe she's pretty crazy.
0: Uh, our next question comes from Ed up in Winnipeg, Canada. Oh, wow. And Ed wants to know if Chris Christie could provoke Donald Trump on or off the debate stage into having an outburst of public narcissistic rage. Is Christie the most effective challenger for the old guard? I'm going to follow it up to another Christie question. First of all, Ed, uh, Trump's probably not going to get in a debate stage with Chris Christie. Chris Christie's pretty tough on a debate stage. He really um, you know, showed that uh, uh, when he devastated Marco Rubio four years ago. Uh, it's interesting, the second part of your question, is he the most effective challenger for the old guard? Well, Chris Christie is the old guard. He is the Bush-Reagan Republican Party, uh, the new guard of the crazy magas. Uh, I think Chris, I think Chris Christie could be a really interesting candidate. He can make a strong case. I don't think he's got any chance to get the nomination. Uh, he was our guest last week. I thought he was very good. John in Chicago was disappointed, however. He said, why don't you let Chris Christie off the hook when you asked him about Trump's tax cuts that expire in 2025? He criticizes spending, yet still wants to add trillions more to the debt. Then he made a comment about entitlements. Well, John, that's what we got. And uh, I don't know what else you could have said. You could have said, you know, are you sure you want to, you know, leave those taxes, the tax cuts intact? Yeah, I'm sure. Well, isn't that outrageous? No, it's not. So, you know, we asked the question. I think that's all we really could have done. Uh, I'm looking, James, for our next question, which is from Jim in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. We're being very national or global, international today. Why do Democrats, Jim's one, let the Republicans control the narrative of gun control? They blame gun violence on the destruction of our American values and mental health problems, not the lack of common sense gun laws. Shouldn't this be a winner for Democrats?
3: The answer is yes, and I understand so much of people's misunderstanding about politics and what political consultants do is erroneous. And if you listen to the average person says, well, they, they, these guys, they come in and they put a lot of words in these politicians' mouth. The truth of the matter is the better the political consultants take words out of their mouth. Guns and abortion are two best issues and we should talk about those, you know, almost exclusively. And you have this huge gun case that the Supreme Court's agreed to take, and basically a Texas Court of Appeal overturned a a regulation that a person that is convicted of domestic abuse can't have a gun. So they want to put Guns and wife beaters' hands. And, and then you go to the average Democrat and they go out and run. You said, talk about this gun thing. You said, well, I talked about it. Then you listen to the speech and it's, well, on every issue that we have, from affirmative action to student loans to the power of state legislatures to, to this, to that, to this, blah, blah, blah. No, pick in guns or, or critically, the public is with us on this. And you got to talk about that. And you talk about Dobbs. And you you don't talk about much else because nothing wins better than those issues do. So uh, you're right. It's not that we don't talk about it enough. We talk about it and too many other things too much.
0: Yep, yep. James, our next question comes from Courtney in Charlotte, North Carolina. Courtney says she and her husband usually walk together every morning. But we split up on Thursday when the show comes on so we can listen and then discuss politics war room later. Courtney, I love you. She says, I am curious, however, why the farm bill is never mentioned when you discuss cutting spending. Neither side ever brings up uh, uh, nor any media brings up uh, the farm bill, which can be a very expensive bill. It's also incredibly politically popular. There's some, you know, one of the biggest farming states in America is New York. Uh, which is uh, counterintuitive to most people. It's got a lot of political appeal, uh, and there's a lot of coalitions that are put together, and it's one of the hardest things to cut. I'm sure there's a lot of waste in it, but uh, you aren't going to balance the budget on the Farm Bill.
3: So, you you know, when you get older, you learn things. A a, a close friend of mine is Mark Keenum. He's the president of Mississippi State. Uh, He ran the Ag Committee for Senator Cochran, He was the deputy secretary of agriculture under President George W. Bush. And uh, his wife was was called Rose Chief of Staff. They're they're very good friends of mine, very good friends of Mary. And I, I asked Mark, I said, you know, like, here you are, conservative, Mississippi Republican. You know, you work for Senator Cochran, free market orientation. What's the case for these agricultural subsidies? And he said, the banks. And one of the things is that the entire lending, agricultural lending, say the entire, a large part of it is dependent on these subsidies. Because if you don't, if the bank can know that you're going to get a price, price floor, you're going to have crop insurance. If, if you were to take that out of the equation, the borrowing cost and the availability of capital to farmers would be dramatically reduced, and it's just something that you don't think about because we don't live in that world. In, in an absolute perfect world, it makes you know was the mohair subsidies from World War One, and it seems antiquated. But if you take it away, it's not just going to cost you votes in Iowa. It would cost Lyndon to shrink and and interest rates to go up. So you you, 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 you just can't unring the bell. That's just the way it is. That's, That's just the politics of it.
0: Graduate of Mississippi State is that great Mississippi Today investigative reporter who broke those scandals in Mississippi, Anna Wolf. Uh, she yeah. she grew up in Tacoma, Washington, but tells me she went to Mississippi State. I'm not sure why, mm-hmm. but boy, she's she's made them proud. Well, you you uh, know
3: they have the the U.S. Grant Library there, and it's one of the better uh, presidential libraries yeah. that there is. They do some terrific stuff in Sawville.
0: Andrew in Los Angeles, California says, James I directed at you. Why are you so concerned about Cornel West? It's hard to know or follow what he's for, and the more you listen, the less it makes sense. What's his constituency?
3: Well. Do you know what Jill Stein was for? Well, actually, she was a Russian agent, provable. And she got more votes in Pennsylvania than Hillary lost by. She got more votes in Michigan than Hillary lost by. And she got more votes in Wisconsin than Hillary lost by. Jill Stein is Cornel West's campaign manager. You wouldn't suspect there might be some Russian money and Russian foolishness going in there, now would you? Of course there was. And, you know, famously, they were sending out stuff in Detroit to to to, to black voters, telling them that they, they'd already voted, they had to vote on Wednesday and not Tuesday, and every other piece of nonsense. And I have to listen to Cornel West. I, I have the Urban Radio 126. I, I listen to the, the right-wing radio 125. And you, you hear a lot of this, you know, I don't want to be on a Democratic plantation anymore. We just give Democrats a vote. We have had a, a, a problem with black turnout. We've also had a problem that we're losing some, some black voters, particularly black males. And Cornel and Cornell West has some attraction there, plus to these, you know, really lefty uh, people. Are, you, don't, you don't need much, as Jill Stein proved. You don't need much. And I think Cornell West is going to do better than Jill Stein.
0: Well, whatever votes he's lot. taken, he's not taking them from Donald Trump. Uh,
3: no, it's probably so, so. taken them. For some of them, where people had to come out and just kind of vote for right. him, just kind of alienated. But some, but, but to the extent they were going to vote for anybody, they definitely voted for Biden. Right. But right. he's got the, you know, the the golden talking point. What have they done for you? Actually, black, white unemployment is closest it's ever been in history. Uh, so I, I guess he's done a lot. But uh, you, you know, you can't win that
0: argument. Our next question is from Duncan and Catherine in London, England, and they say it's a question from two devoted UK listeners to your excellent podcast. Thank you, Duncan and Catherine. In your opinion, which vice president was the greatest president the United States never had? That is so simple. It was the guest who we heard from earlier on the show, Albert Gore. He was a great vice president. He would have been a great president. The runner-up is probably Fritz Mondale, Uh, and uh, I just think uh, Gore not only would have been a great president, but God, what he has done the last 23 years. And we were so fortunate to have him on today, James. You you bet. I, I mean, I've said this in a book,
3: say it again, Al Gore has been right about more things than anyone in my lifetime. It's not just that he was right about climate. He was right about airport safety. He was right about the, the order in which we should have taken things. He was right about when he helped fund the Internet, was one of the most shameful things I've ever seen in the fucking media. You know, he he, he was. actually. I don't say so he invented the Internet, but he was a critical person at the never said, the said he beginning. invented
0: the Internet. Huh? He never said he
3: invented the right, Internet. I know he never said, but it was he became made he came up. Made yeah. up and, you know, I, I got to tell you, when when, it was, when Bush people go came down, it people, a lot of people in Washington said, well, maybe it's time for a change. And the Bush people, go, you know, they're going to bring in some competent people. It'd be good dinner party people, Cheney and Rummy and Powell and Condi. And <laughs> how did that work out? <laughs> how did that work out? You know, and... uh it was not. It was not greeted in in certain quarters with 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 any sense of horror. In fact, not not. Some people were kind of relieved that Bush was coming in with his adults in a room.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, Duncan and Catherine, uh, I think the question was easy to answer, but we really appreciate you listening all the way over there in the UK. Of course, we're you know we're on. I guess it's about one o'clock in the afternoon in the UK. Uh, James, on Thursday. So uh, please keep listening and keep questions coming in. Absolutely. Final final question today is from Kyle in Portland, Oregon. Said, is it possible that the Dobbs decision drove turnout in 2022, an election where more ideologically motivated people show up to vote? But I think Kyle's worried about this. In 2024, everybody shows up to vote, and the Dobbs decision, the Dobbs-motivated voters will be diluted. Well,
3: but the problem is, jobs change some people's minds. All right, it, they, 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 let's just say in certain demographics of us, particularly women, we're, we're starting to move more democratic. It disaccelerated it. I mean, it's just not a. I understand the gentleman's question. It's a, it, it, it's a more level, of sophisticated question. And he's saying that larger turnout will dissipate the ideological intensity that Democrats experience over dogs. That's a, a reasonable point to make. I mean you, you know, we could argue about how much or whatever it is, but but it's also changing minds. And it's also if the Democrats are smart and they use the dive decisions and the gun decisions, it, you know, to, to to illustrate why we need to change, that they can go pretty far. If they conflate a lot of other things and talk too freaking much, we can't go as far.
0: I agree. When you talk about uh, abortion and obstitution, it's go back to row. Go back to row. Viability. And that's uh, that's what you can win on. All right. Right. Listen, those questions are great. If we didn't get to yours this week, please send them in uh, again. uh, And thank you. uh, And we'll be back next week with more great questions. Hey, thanks for listening to politics war room with james carville and i'm al hunt don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at politicon following this episode we'd really appreciate it if you check out the link to our sponsor lomi in the show notes we thank you for supporting them when you do you help make this podcast happen now to keep up with us subscribe to politics war room on apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.